0: Welcome to New Books in Military History, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jeffrey Bristol, and I am a host on the channel. Today we have with us Bing West, who has a long military history himself, having served in the Marines during Vietnam as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, and has written many books about military subjects, both fiction and nonfiction, including co-authoring General Mattis's memoirs. His latest book is a work of fiction, The Last Platoon, wherein he describes a short the whole novel takes place in seven days, but a very bloody mission in a rural district in Afghanistan. Welcome to the channel, Mr. West. It's a pleasure to speak with you today.
1: Thanks, Jeff, and and I go by by Bing,
0: Bing, like right. Bing,
1: Bing Crosby. Yeah.
0: All right, great, Bing. Um, uh, it's the uh, formalities out of the way. Uh, I'd love if you could talk to us a little bit about yourself and your background. I've given a very short introduction, but I think it's best to hear from from the from the man himself. Um, so just please introduce yourself to readers who, uh, listeners who might not be familiar with you.
1: Sure. Well, I was born in Boston when World War II was going on, and my two of my uncles were fighting in the Marines in the Pacific, and whenever they would come home, they would be my babysitters. So my mother said, I was I was destined to become a marine and after college I was supposed to go to law school but instead I joined the Marines infantry fought in Vietnam then went back to do my graduate graduate work after that but I kept going back to Vietnam for several years and I wrote um, two or three books about my experiences war fighting one of them being called The Village where i was with a small group what we call a combined action platoon there were 12 marines and we were in a village 485 days <laughs> <And> that was <laughs> that was really something and then uh, later i was an assistant secretary of defense under president reagan i i thought he was just a wonderful man and i got a chance to see pretty much the world then and then um, then I went back as as a writer for the Iraq War, and then I decided to do the Afghanistan War. So I made about 20, 30, 40 trips and embedded with the platoons from one end of Iraq to the other and from one end of Afghanistan to the other. And out of that, I wrote a series of books. So altogether, I've written about a dozen books about war, battlefields, and what happens in the differences between how a White House looks at things and how it looks like when you're on the ground doing the fighting?
0: Yeah, and that's one of the interesting things about this book is that there's a there is an interesting track back between uh, the DC side of things and 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 on the ground. So you know that's that's a really interesting and varied background. And one of the things I, I was thinking about in terms of your writing. One, what's it like to go from the battlefield to writing about the battlefield? You know, obviously you have, you bring a lot of experience to it, but um, how is it processing those memories, and how is it going back to Afghanistan and Iraq, and uh, not being a Marine yourself, but being somebody who's uh, going alongside of them?
1: <laughs> well, I'll answer the second one then the first. Um, the commandant down the Marine Corps says that you. He cannot recall you after you're 95 years of age. So up until then, you're still considered to be capable of fighting. So whenever I went back, uh, the Marines just treated me as, you know, okay, well, he's been there. He's done that. Um, I generally refused to carry a weapon because I had to keep up with them, and I, I didn't want to be carrying extra gear. And I used to tell them when they'd say, hey, come on, sir, you got to be carrying something. I'd say... When you need me to be shooting, there will be plenty of weapons available. And so I, I found it very easy to to move from one platoon to the other, which Jeff, I couldn't have done. I was a platoon commander, infantry. I couldn't have done that if if I were a pilot. A pilot today can't just, you know, get into a new F-35 and fly it. But the infantry hadn't changed that much. And that was I was able to carry over when you're writing, you're writing, and every writer will tell you this, it, it, the only thing that makes a writer is an iron ass. You <laughs> just have to sit there every day with a blank piece of paper in front of you and work and work and work, and, work, and then rewrite and rewrite and rewrite until your wife is ready to shoot you. And at that particular point, you you hope you finally have something worth saying. But there's there's no easy way about writing. None. None whatsoever.
0: It sounds a lot like being a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you charge by the hour. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, and it doesn't matter how good what I write is. <laughs> uh, as, and if, many lawyers should be thankful for that. Uh, some lawyers are great writers. Some some are some you ha- you wonder why you're having to read this, <laughs> but I, I think that's a great point. So, you know, I'm thinking, uh, taking it maybe the other direction for that same question, what's the relationship do you think between fiction and real life? You know, so obviously you bring a lot as a, as a Marine infantry officer into your writing, but for people who, you know, are in boot camp or going through the basic school, you know, and obviously they have these thick reading lists and many of them are fiction. And I think fiction is very useful. What, what, uh, what, what have you found? What do you think is the use for fiction for uh, Marine soldiers, airmen, coasties and sailors in training?
1: If well in this book, in this novel, for instance, the last platoon, it's really what happens on a battlefield. Every single of the firefight that's in that book was a real firefight that I was in. And so even in a novel, you begin, if you're reading carefully, to to get a feel for what the culture is like, whether it's within a platoon in the infantry, or on board a ship. You 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 know you 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 get a feeling for how it might be, and what General Jim Mattis is a good friend of mine. You know he always says, if you don't read, I don't want you in my command.
0: Yeah. Well, and he was uh he was uh, a famous one for uh for books in his library.
1: Correct. Yeah. Jim and I used to exchange books all the time. We still do. Yep. There's there's no there is no substitute for reading. No substitute whatsoever.
0: So what is it that uh what do you think people get out of reading? Is it just knowing more about how far a rifle can fire, about the doctrine of the enemy, is it character? What, what kinds of things do we get out of out of reading before we have these experiences?
1: Oh, I, I'd say uh, the only genre that I deal with is military, war fighting, close combat. And the two things I think you take away from my books and that kind of book, like The Last Platoon, is character. How much character counts? And the other thing, if you notice in, in my book, it seems like every firefight is almost choreographed on both sides, and it was because Cruz, who's who's the protagonist, the the major, the captain, Cruz knew he had Marines who hadn't been in combat before, so he kept saying, "You have to do this. You have to do that." So you, because when you're out there in a firefight, it's two-sided, and you're walking out into the unknown. Knowing that the Taliban who are out there, they're not out there to die. They're out there to kill you. So it's a mystery story. Who's going to win and who, who's going to outmaneuver the other person? Ground combat, when, you, when, you're, when you're really close with the enemy within 500 meters, is like air-to-air combat between two quick jet fighters. You you don't put your head up for more than two seconds at any given time or it'll be whacked off on both sides. And so in the book, I try to show people what develops in a firefight and how Cruz was able to take his Marines and keep them moving because the other the Taliban were doing the same thing. So I would hope a reader would come away and say, well, now I understand now I understand a lot more than I did before about what happens in that kind of a fight.
0: and over your over your career, you've uh, obviously been in combat situations in at least three different countries, right Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan. How similar were those combat experiences uh, between themselves? Uh,
1: all three of them were highly similar. In the firefights, Vietnam was the most intense in a lot of ways because we had many better weapons in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we had night-seeing devices in Afghanistan and Iraq that we did not have in Vietnam. Uh, What saved me a lot of times in Vietnam was that Americans can throw grenades farther than anyone else can throw a grenade, and that made a huge difference on the battlefields at night. Because we could we could outrange them by throwing the grenades, Father. But the 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 other thing about about the experiences themselves, when you look back on them at them, they're very very similar except for one thing. Death, the way in which death is now treated, Jeff, is vastly different than Vietnam. One night in Vietnam. Um, We were in a fight during the day, and then it got dark, and we were being hit by mortars. And the next morning, the Marines came by me, some of the Marines, and they had in their ponchos two dead Marines. We didn't have stretchers back then. And I said, who are they? And they said, sir, it's Smithers and Sullivan or something. I said, who? And they said, oh, sir, they just joined us last night. I never even got a chance to meet them. And then they were dead in the morning. We put them on the helicopter when we're getting our resupplies, the bodies, and then we started out for the next fight, which 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 occurred about 10 minutes later. So you, you accepted death because it was just after World War II. You accepted this was going to happen. It's quite different today. Everything stops. There's much more solemn. There are there are times to reflect. And, and back in Vietnam, many more religion was more central, and therefore people believed more that there was a God and an afterlife. The interesting thing is an awful lot of the Marines on the battlefield still believe that, versus the average person, perhaps. But if you don't have something to hang on to, and suddenly the the man next to you is killed, it, it can knock you for a loop a little bit. Now, uh, in a way that it was different in Vietnam.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I that's something that has definitely as a as a soldier and now a naval officer has has struck me as well. And I think, you know, kind of haunts our military engagements abroad is both, you know, our response to casualties, our willingness to suffer casualties, and our and our relationship with, you know, the value of human life, both on our side and on the side of the enemies. And so, and I think this the last platoon really brings this out, I think, well, when you show, you know, how much one dead Marine means to the Pentagon, that the president is talking about it in a way that would have been impossible in, in, in Vietnam, I think. So, you know, what what impact do you think has that had on war? Obviously, you know, it's it, we know that it brings protest, uh, increases protest, but it also seems like it has this strange... Um, Counter effect, where it brings strategic level actors like the president and the uh, and the secretary of defense down to an almost tactical level, which again you, you show in the book where you have the secretary of defense almost seems like he's questioning uh, on the ground tactics that should be left. I mean, that probably shouldn't even go much higher than a battalion level. You know, probably in in Vietnam, brigade brigade commander wouldn't have been that concerned about it. So what do you think has happened here? Um, How does that impact uh, ground combat and ground operations?
1: It's made a vast difference. And that's why in in the last platoon, I keep shifting, showing what's happening on the battlefield and then bringing it back to the White House, because I've, I've been to the White House many times and showing all of a sudden they're getting the press reports. They realize, my gosh, we lost another Marine. How did that happen? And the president wanting to control things from the top. I have seen that time after time. And then it gradually gets down the chain of command. Hey, you're not supposed to take casualties. Well, holy cow. I mean, you you know, you're out there. And and all of a sudden you're told, you know, you're not supposed to be taking casualties. And that's, that's where I tried in the book to show the pressure Cruz was under because his colonel, his colonel, didn't want to take these casualties he wanted to avoid them and he was blaming crews and the president then coming down the chain of command the colonel knew he was in trouble so i tried to indicate this connectivity that we have these instant communications they put a lot of pressure sometimes in a in an untoward way that shouldn't be there
0: and so and what so is, is this effect positive negative how, how, do you have any ideas how we might avoid it
1: Yes, I do. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you. Yeah, I do. I, look, the, the things that I didn't like about Vietnam, Iraq and Afghanistan is that we didn't fight to win. Um, you know, uh, if you're going to go into a war, it, it shouldn't just be us that are out there in the platoons that die. You should basically all the way up and down the chain of command from the president on down say, by gosh, we're going to go to war. There's a reason for going to war and we're going to break the spirit of the enemy so that he does what we want done. And, and, I, and I'm and i going to put everything I can into doing it. This kind of stuff, like we did in, like like President Johnson not wanting to bomb North Vietnam. And, and in Iraq, uh, you know, we, we got all tangled up. And then in Afghanistan, it was even worse. Um, trying to say, we're, we're going to make, we're going to win the hearts and minds of the people. Well, no, we're not. I mean, the idea that we we're going to win the Taliban over or something was crazy. So... You asked me a direct question, I'll give you a direct answer. I I think that the military at the top, that the generals owe an obligation to be more direct with a president. And when when a president says something like, well, we're going to nation build, the generals today went along with him and and said, fine, you know, we'll go out and nation build. The generals should have said, sir, we have 19- and 20-year-old Marines and, and soldiers They have rifles. You only do one thing with a rifle. They don't know how to build a nation. That's a bunch of tribes over there hurtling headlong into the ninth century. If they're going to go out, they're going to go out to fight. And we have to say these are our objectives on the battlefield. This is what we're going to do and and not get fuzzy-wuzzy the way we did and stay for 20 years without any real notion what we were doing. I'm sorry to kind of explode yeah. like that, but you know it just
0: you <laughs> no, know, no big that that, that was great. And, I mean, i I don't want to get too politically, but I think it's interesting because it comes to mind that in o three there was one general who more or less did that general Shinzeki. and uh, yes, uh, yeah. well. <laughs>
1: Shinseki and he, he was fired, right and he told the truth and and it drove me crazy in Afghanistan and and everyone. I mean, many Marine generals really don't like the book, the last platoon, because they basically say, Hey, you know, come on, you know, the, the Colonel wasn't really like that. Oh, yes, he was, you know, and, and we, ah, uh, <laughs> I just get yeah, well, really, missed. you know, no,
0: I think, I think, and I think the tension between Kaufman and Cruz, between the Colonel and the captain is an excellent one. And, you know, it, I think highlights some of the bizarre tension. So, um, you know, I wonder if you could just talk about those two characters and what they represent in the Marine Corps um, and this whole structure that we're talking about.
1: Well, it, it, every um, <laughs> one general called me up after he read the book and he said, You know, Bing, he said, We don't have all those kinds of people. And I, I said, Oh, yes, yes, we do, General. I said, You know, um, it, it, there was a great book called The Kane Mutiny. It was written after World War
0: II. I've only seen the movie; very good
1: movie. Uh, <laughs> and and um, the the chief of naval operations was asked, "Well, what did you think about that mo- that book?" And he said, "Well, at one." time or another in my 30 years in the Navy, I've read I've bumped into every son of a bitch that was on that ship, but never all on the same ship at the same time. (laughs) So there is a little literary license that I took um, in the last platoon. But I tried to indicate the crews. He he represents the grunt. He represents the, the guy who's out there on the pointy end. And he's He's not really... He knew his career was in trouble, and he's trying to balance that against what duty he owes to his men. And at the same time, the colonel, Kaufman, he wants to get promoted, and he feels that Cruz is putting everything in a jeopardy when he shouldn't be doing that. And, and I try to bring out those tensions because they exist an awful lot. Um, and, and many times... They are not reconciled. Um, And that's why I keep coming back to, at a higher level, before we get into these things like going into Afghanistan and spending 20 years of this stuff, that that somebody has to talk to the president and say, Mr. President, I need a direct understanding of how this is going to end.
0: Yeah, right. Well, and and what I think is, is interesting, thinking structurally about the military, you have, I think... In Kaufman and Cruz, the embodiments of two typical kinds of officers, with maybe all of the negative traits that one would expect in a staff officer and a line officer, um, and you know maybe are, are a little bit stereotypes. I think in a good way, in a functional way, between the two, you know, is it possible for one officer to be both parties? It seems in in part, part of the problem is Kaufman is definitely not. Not a, a, a an enviable figure, but he also seems largely a creature of his own creation. You know, peacetime armies. I often think you have peacetime armies and wartime armies, and they want the opposite things. You know, in the peacetime, you want uh, a military uh, to be fairly risk averse to make sure that it's ready for war. You don't want people who take a lot of risks. You want people who are good at rules. Um, and processes, maybe over outcomes, because that's how you preserve the force. And in war, you want the opposite. You need to take the fleet out and fight it, which, of course, you know, I think always is the example of the German battle fleet in World War I. You know, it's a perfect example of a peacetime force in war where it was very pretty. It was very, uh, appeared functional on paper, but nobody wanted to commit it in the offing, really. So it, can we reconcile these, these two options? Can we have officers that do both, or are we kind of stuck with Kaufman's and cruises?
1: Um, we won't know until the next big war starts. And, and and by that, I mean, we have to be very careful because what, what has crept in, even to the army and to the Marines, is this thing called force protection, where we gradually accepted that you were going to go out there and you're going to fight, but nobody was going to die. Well, wow, no, that's not going to happen. And And the other thing, Jeff, that I think... The Navy, you mentioned the Navy. The Navy has not fought a war engagement against an enemy since 1945. We're, we're 75 years of peace. And in World War II, the Navy ended up relieving an awful lot of ships, ship commanders and submarine commanders very, very quickly because they didn't really turn out to have the right stuff. We're going to get into another big war at some point, and there's going to be a sorting out, and I hope the sorting out can come quickly enough, because some pe- we have, to a large extent taken away risk-taking. We've we, you know, you, you don't want to have your, your cruiser run aground, and you, you don't <laughs> want somebody just risking lives unnecessarily. So you really won't know. You really won't know until we get into that big war. I think we've become too risk averse, but there's no way you can prove that, because <laughs> you don't want to go to a war just to prove it. You know.
0: Right. Right. Well, I think it's interesting. You know, I think if you read about um, some of the captains' responses to uh, the collisions with the Fitzgerald and the McCain, um, I definitely think it sounds like. Uh, as well as some other high-profile incidents with uh, ship captains. Uh, now, of course, I'm speaking purely not as, a, not as a naval officer here, just my own opinion. Um, uh, I think you've seen some naval officers in command positions that uh, maybe didn't have the right stuff even in peacetime. Um, but
1: I, we have to be very, very careful, and I don't know quite how to sort it out, but there's one big difference between the Army and the Marines and the Navy in terms of ships, and that is – On a battlefield, as I try to point out in the last platoon, you're you're maneuvering with two, four, six, eight people with small squads, and you let them go because you, you 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 can't control them, you don't want to. But any ship, the captain fights the ship. The entire ship has to do what one person, that's the captain of the ship, wants to do. There's an entirely different mode there about risk-taking and there's a great movie with Tom Hanks called Greyhound that's out it's terrific because when you watch the movie you, you see what everything that happened to that destroyer escort it was what Tom Hanks as the captain decided so there's a big difference between how the Marines fight decentralized and how any captain has to be centralized
0: yeah, I, th- I think that's a great point, Bing. And that's that's actually something as I, as, as we were talking before, my, my background as an enlisted man was in the Army. Now I'm, I'm an officer in the Navy Reserves. And that's been one of the biggest transitions, I think, between service mentality. Um, and one of the things I think that I never really fully understood about the Navy before, before I came back in um, is that difference, is that, you know, in the Army, even the Army tends to be more centralized. I think the Marine Corps pushes leadership down or it keeps leadership at higher levels. The Marine Corps really pushes it down to strategic Lance Corporal, kind of concept. But still, even then, even if you're just a private first class in the army in an infantry platoon or doing something else, you really have a lot of autonomy. You know, you kind of do, even if it's just your fire, 20 square foot, you know, 25 degree angle fire lane sector in front of you, that, that is yours, you know, and you make decisions. Um, which is which is very different so w- one of the things that well, i'd like to shift to
1: that's why to- I, I tried to jeff in the book you know in the yep. big fight toward the end of the book it was up to every individual you you know what i mean it, you see what i mean i mean you know what i'm talking about i don't want to give the the the, the story away but in the end it was every single individual marine
0: right 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 working together as a team to hold everything together and 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 I think I think that's that's kind of what makes you know makes the story so compelling beyond you know life and death elements that it, there is is a lot of teamwork getting back to the bigger picture one of the things I have always felt uncomfortable about is in our last wars the reliance on the CIA uh particularly the paramilitary division of the CIA I maybe I'm a little old fashioned but uh You know, I I may and maybe I've read a little too much of the founders, but I I am I am of the mind that armed armed forces, you know, they're necessary for a nation, but they can be a dangerous thing, particularly when they're not closely supervised. And the CIA, eh, it's hard to supervise what they're doing. So you you have the CIA team in the book. Uh, I don't want to give too many details away, but um, what? First, could you tell us a little bit about some of the inspirations for the CIA team and what do you think about this? Is the CIA role in warfare good? It seems like in the book you kind of portray it as a a potential to move away from Kaufman types and red tape. Uh, What do you think about all this? I've worked
1: closely with the CIA for many decades. Um, Their special activities group used to be called the special operations group. um, In my mind, they're terrific, and I know them very well. Uh, uh, I've worked with them. Uh, they, every one of them, comes from a military background to begin with, and they're they're activists. They're they're not they're not cowboys. They're highly intelligent. They're in fantastic shape. They're very mature. They know what they're doing, and they. Do, you're right. They have much less red tape than our services do. So I think any place you go, Jeff, in the Army and the Marines, when they're out on the ground, yeah, they, they welcome these these small groups of the agency, the company, when they're out there with them. They 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 really help.
0: They really help. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're very they're very well equipped. I didn't mean, and I that comment, it was not in yeah, any way yeah, meant to Denigrate yeah. their professionalism. Oh, no, no. Like I said, I just get a little bit nervous when the you know, the government you know, has armed groups that you can't really keep an eye on.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah. you know, very, very close friends of mine who, you know, are at the top of that and and ran it for many years, they turn that on its head and say, no, stop trying to control us from the top. You give us a finding, you tell us what you want to do, and then keep your hands off us and let us do it. So, you you know, it's, 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 you can argue both points of view. You can argue both points with you. But I'll tell you, the, the job they're doing in Afghanistan and in, in, in Iraq and in, in Syria is terrific.
0: So do you think uh, that they are kind of coming there, the stopgap for some of the regular uh, uniform services shortcomings? No, no, no.
1: They're, they're too small for that. We're, no, no, no. We're, we're talking very, very small numbers. No, no. They're, they are very complementary to the Special Operations Forces um, and, and they, they develop really good intelligence on the ground, but to develop that intelligence takes weeks, sometimes months. So you, you, you can't use them as a substitute for having the cruisers of the world, you know, who go out on patrol every day. No, it's more complimentary. And that's why I had them in the book. They were there for that special operation in the book. So that's why they were there. They had a special operation and they just happened to work with Cruz in the book because, you know, they both want to stay alive. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, and I think that's interesting too. You know, I, I, I think this is, this is another thing that I, I personally also get a little concerned about is, um, you know, the relationship between some of these organizations like the CIA uh, Special Activities Division um, and Special Forces and the infantry, I think sometimes, unfortunately, in the military, but also in the popular imagination, people put them as a, a hierarchy. You know, like you're in the infantry and the infantry's not as good as the maybe the Green Berets and the Green Berets aren't as good as the SEALs. And no one's as good as the CIA. But really, there's a, there's a much more complementary relationship. Is that correct?
1: Oh, sure. Everybody. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But some of these guys are awful gosh darn good, especially the Delta guys. But but everyone, yeah, but no one objects when somebody who is, say, say you're, you know, like in the book I tried to indicate the, the squad leaders kind of held them in awe um, it, when they're out on patrol with them as well they should because the average age of the CIA guys they had in the book was 37 to 40 and the average, you know, squad leader was twenty-four. Of course, he's going to look up to them to a certain extent, and he should. But they work it out. It, it, it. it there aren't any big difficulties there. They, they work that out.
0: And uh, so, obviously, the the Taliban plays a major role in this book. Um, how did you, how did you write about the Taliban? What, what, what sources did you draw from?
1: Oh, I was over there many times, and and um, a lot of the, a lot of. The military is very nice to me. I, I was allowed into the prisons. I had a chance to talk to the Taliban who had been captured. I had a chance to um, talk to ISIS who had been captured. Um, I, and then, then we have really good intel people. And, and then they get on the they get on the radio, as as, as I indicate in the book. And they're willing to chat with you and argue with you and everything else. I mean, it's it's a bizarre situation. You know, they're all on their iCons. They're all on their. Everyone has a cell phone over there, by the way. So there's no there's no mystery to them. Um, and I tried to indicate that the Taliban, on the one hand, are some of them religious, like the Emir that I painted. You know, he mm-hmm. he, he lives mm-hmm. in Geda. He lives in Pakistan. But at the same time, all of them are part of the drug trade. And and, and the drugs, I mean, we're talking over $500 million straight cash pouring out of the bottom of Afghanistan every year, going into Pakistan, and then being converted into heroin, then going into Iran. And through Iran, it goes up into the Balkans, Serbia, et cetera, And then it goes into Russia and Western Europe. So everyone is dirty. Everyone knows that they are poisoning someone by doing this. And I tried to indicate that. Even the farmers who are out there, you know, making, they know that what they're doing is wrong, but they're doing it. And don't say, it, they're not poor. They are not. They can grow anything there. But but the poppy pays twice as much as anything. So I tried to indicate Yes, there's the religious strain to the Taliban, absolutely, but there's also that element. We're all going to get our share out of the poppy.
0: Right. It seems like sometimes there was a big question in the in the book about what the real fight was. Again, I, I don't want to give anything away, but you know, um, the 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 main target of the main mission. Uh it was not maybe necessarily what people might think it was, um, especially if you come from a background where you think about uh HVI, high value individual targeting and whatnot. Um, and so that I, th- I think that was that that was that was that was very interesting. Um so um yeah, so what what do you think uh what do you think the role there uh is uh with the drug fighting in Afghanistan, also uh, Iraq and Syria to a lesser degree. Do you think that that is uh, rightfully the uh, uh, kind of a big focus or do you think we should be focusing on other things?
1: I'd make a huge distinction. It, it's, it's, it's nothing in Iraq or Syria. That, so that's a separate subject entirely. In Afghanistan, it permeates the entire society. The, you know, I mean, should we get out of Afghanistan? I think we should get down to about a thousand people some of our CIA guys, some of our special operators, and especially, you know, some of our pilots and drones and just keep pressure on the Taliban. But don't think that we can we can ever get back, like I put this platoon into the province of Helmand down in the south. Don't think we can ever get Helmand back. It's gone. Um, the, the areas that are heavy and poppy are controlled by the Taliban. And since... The farmers are getting money from the heroin from the poppy. Why why in goodness gracious, for what reason would they want a government coming in and saying you can't, you know, you can't raise, you, you can't do that anymore? And there are a lot of people on the government side too that are getting getting their shares. In fact, the whole thing is is the government gets about seven percent. The the Taliban gets about 15 percent and the other 75 percent, you know, the, the, the higher uptake about 50 percent and the farmers get maybe 25 percent. The whole thing is divided up. I mean, it's you know, so the, the idea that we're going to clean that up in Afghanistan. No, we're not the the only thing I don't think we should lose Kabul because. I was the special assistant to Secretary of Defense Schlesinger in 1975 when Saigon fell. And the mood in America when we began to realize, holy cow, it it was it was really really bad, and I don't want to see us go through that. So I would keep some troops there so that the Taliban cannot take Kabul, but I would not have any illusions that we can go down into helmet or something and take it back.
0: Yeah. So, and that's, that's, that raises an interesting question. The role of the government in your, in your novel, the government is pretty absent. There's uh, an Afghan National Army uh, patrol, I think was, I don't know whether it was Afghan National Army or Afghan National Police. Uh, Sometimes they're difficult to tell apart other than the uniforms they wear in terms of their operational posture. But um, yeah, so what, what, what is the role of the government? Is it basically non-existent? What do these a What do these A and A patrols really do?
1: Try to stay alive and not be there. Um, I, I put the this patrol there. Uh, in reality, the when we oh boy when let me put it this way, time year after year when I went over there, and this is the reason one of the reasons I finally decided to write this novel and get it off my chest um, when. I went out with the Marines. They always had some Afghan soldiers with them, and we could clear an area. But I met no Marine captain. I met no Marine uh, lieutenant or sergeant who ever believed that once we left, those Afghan soldiers would stay out in the area we call the green zone because it was Very vegetated, and you'd bump into the Taliban at very short range, let alone stay out in the poppy fields. And sure enough, as soon as we pulled out, they stopped patrolling. Well, there is no draft in Afghanistan. Most of the Afghan army fighting in the south, and now they're just, they're only in a couple of cities hanging on for dear life. They they come from the Tajik tribe from the north. They they don't even speak the language down there, so a lot of what we were doing for many years didn't make sense. And I, I tried to illustrate that in the book that uh, without without us being there, they wouldn't be there.
0: Yeah, and um, and and one of the the only real contacts between the. Uh, marines and the afghan forces is a, a green beret captain but what is that interface like is that usually how tenuous the connection between the two groups is and is, is that an effective coordination method in your experience
1: um again every character in 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 the book
0: is is a real character and the green beret
1: character is really quite a character but the answer is yes the 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 uh, Oda teams the special forces teams they linked up with a lot of the a uh, what a lot of the Afghan national and they were their advisors um, the group that gets along best as you can imagine was was our special operations forces in our CIA units that had intergrouped to them the very best of the Afghan soldiers with them um, but they were very small units when you get down to where we were in Hellman that I was describing, you would have uh, an advisory unit, the Green Berets in this particular case. we use the Green Berets a lot down there uh, and they would just have a very small unit uh, and then they they really liked having the Marines around <laughs> so we we all got along very well. <laughs>
0: And so one of the other things that strikes uh, strike struck me reading it, and maybe again, this is thinking about, you know, uh, military uh, policy and structure on, on a somewhat higher level than the ground combat that you really focused on in the book. How do all of these pieces link? Um, and that, that is a theme you have the CIA team come in, and they maybe are complementary to Kaufman's mission, maybe not complementary to Kaufman's mission. He has spent some time figuring them out. Um, ultimately, I think because of his personality, it seems like he doesn't make the use of them that he could have. Um, but you know, also you have the green berets with the Afghan, Afghans, Kaufman has a hard time integrating those into his, uh, into his unit. Cruz comes in as an individual augmentee from the United States. That's a lot of moving pieces. You know, is this pretty typical from your experience over there? And, and how does one get all of this stuff to integrate?
1: Well, I'll say two different things. The first is historically, for the last 10 years, the the way you integrate everything is very simple. You have perfect communications. Better communications than you and I do now, Jeff. Everyone has video that they're talking with higher headquarters and looking them in the eye. And then every night, especially the poor army platoons, had to turn in power points <laughs> of, of where they were going to go on their patrols. And 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 this gets up to division headquarters and then I and then they have what they call, oh, BUAS Battlefield, yeah, a BUA, a battlefield update assessment. And you will walk into a to an auditorium and there will the general be at the back um <laughs> and and before him there'll be maybe a hundred you know, soldiers, and et cetera, all on their computers. And then somebody gets up on stage and he briefs the weather and the next person briefs intelligence, the next person briefs operations. And then above them, there's another group and they go back to Tampa, Florida. And then Tampa, Florida goes to, to the headquarters and, and the joint staff in Washington, D.C. Then the Washington, D.C. staff... They go to the secretary of defense, then the chairman of the joint chiefs and the secretary of defense go over to the White House. And then they get together with the National Security Council and all of them have perfect communications.
0: And I assume so, that th- they're yeah, all talking about the patrol that's going on tomorrow or something well, similar to that.
1: That's why I indicated in this particular case, I mean, it's getting all the way up to the top. The poor crew has just lost another guy, you, you, you know, Um the answer is yes. For the last twenty years, because our communications has been exquisite, too exquisite. It's, you know, I, I, I had it's like you have you're you're in a, a, a large car CM and you you have a football game going on, but Jerry Jones of the Dallas Cowboys is up in his booth talking with you know with the Secretary of Defense or something. Oh, let's send in a play. You see what I mean? And yeah. well, get down to the coach, you know, and the coach says to the quarterback, Hey, we got a new play coming in play. You got what? <laughs> you know, but <laughs> but the great danger is I don't believe those communications are going to be there when we get into a tough war. I think those right, well, communications are gonna right, I, I don't and, think and, they're gonna be there. Yep. And and we we then are gonna to have to adapt and decentralize like that.
0: Well, and I I know at least on the Navy side, there's been a lot of emphasis now on running, um, running maneuvers and field exercises. You know, fleet exercises. I'm going to use my Navy terminology uh, in you know denied environments. Is I I think what they usually call it. Um, But you know, I think it's interesting though. I wonder if we were talking about the relatively low level of actual fighting that happens in. Iraq and Afghanistan a little earlier in the conversation. And I wonder if that's a side effect, you know, if we had, even if we did have that perfect, com, uh, communications and we were say having even Vietnam levels of combat, you know, you couldn't report everything, you know? Um, I think the fact that we have so few patrols is seems to me partly what, what enables some of that perfect communication. Well, I was just
1: thinking of the other aspect, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, in a company in a day uh, in in Vietnam, you, you take five KIA in a fight. Uh, uh, some of the battalions, you you take sixty killed in a day or two days. Up up along the Trace, Con Tien in places, gee, we'd have sometimes a hundred killed in a day. And I I I don't know how the press. I don't know how the White House, I don't know how, Jeff, I don't know how our society would think in the, in terms of those casualties that are bound to happen in another big war because we've become so used to really losing very, very few people. And the other thing, and I know now this is getting far afield, but but the other thing, the entire world in a way, I mean, this COVID still flabbergasts me that the entire world shut down in ways that I thought were, were quite extraordinary. Um, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. You know, it, it, I, I, I just have this. My next book is going to be about this, by the way. My next novel, I'm, I'm going to get into what's what's another big war going to look like and how is our society going to handle it? I, I think we have to be very careful that we, <laughs> you, yeah, you know, yeah. it, 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 you can't fight and not lose people.
0: Well, I, I agree. I think it's an interesting. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't want to get too far afield on the COVID thing. I think our, our thinking on that issue may be the same. But um, but but keeping it more more restricted to this, I, I agree. And and I wonder sometimes, you know, uh, you know, even, even if we are would be unwilling to even initiate wars that we may have to otherwise uh, because of that concern for casualties. I think our understanding of human life, I think, as you indicated early, part of it's religious. I think part of it's other uh, other things going on is, is changed in some very substantial ways. Uh, and, and I think it's had interesting impacts on combat. We, you don't cover some of the uh, requirements for humanitarian assistance as much in this book, but, you know, there's a lot of concern for uh, non-combatants. Uh, you do talk about a little bit, you talk about a little bit of a shift where uh, one of the younger boys um, yeah. might've gotten a little better yep. attention in yep. the beginning. Yep. Well, why don't you talk about that? How's, how's our change? How's that changed? Our, our view of, of casualties, particularly the casualties of the enemy over the, oh, and, and civilians over the course of this war?
1: Well, the enemy, it, with the aid of the villagers does a very good job of policing the battlefield and taking away their casualties we relative to the civilians i believe we went to extraordinary lengths to to help i mean wherever we could but it it became it's it's really tough when your generals on down are telling you, don't really fire if you don't have to fire when you're getting fire from a compound because there might be civilians inside. That's, again, it, it gets all the way back to you, you have to define your purpose and you have to determine what you mean by going to war before and not be trying to work it out every day on the battlefield. And in the last platoon, I, I, I put crews in a couple of situations there where some of the poor civilians and the kids are really badly hurt and he has to make the decision on the spot, what's he going to do about this? So just to drive it home so that people realize it's, it's what you look at every day when you're out there on that battlefield. It's what you look at.
0: Yeah. I, I, I think, I think you did an effective job, uh, forcing some of those choices and, you know, I think it's hard for many people and maybe this gets back to the purpose of, of this kind of fiction to imagine that because we face so many fewer, uh, life or death situations as civilians. You know, if you go back and read stories, I remember my wife and I were listening to the last of the doughboys on uh, an audio tape and, um, I think, you know, I was interviewed with the last surviving war one soldiers. It was done sometime in the early two thousands and they were talking about death in their lives. And they mentioned that, you know, uh, by bro- growing up, I had four brothers and two of them were killed in farm accidents, <laughs> Right. you know? Um, and yeah. that, I think just, I mean, that changes it because you, when you go to war, then you have a kind of a conception and a, a rhetoric and an understanding of that to draw from.
1: That's correct. and, and, Some of the places, I I was in Sangin, which was the hottest place hit. And therefore, it really is the location for the book, The Last Platoon. And I did put in the the novel what I actually saw. When we were going out every day, we, we would bump into three or four or five improvised explosive devices. And we all went single file behind the engineer with the... Um, you know, doing the mind detection sweeping, but it, it's it's you're going to lose people.
0: And yeah, which, by the way, I don't mean to interrupt you, Bing. But reading that every time I, I read I read about that, and I thought about it, my brother was also a combat engineer in the army. That's uh, that's got to be a brave fellow.
1: Well, but you know, I I tried to drive it home by indicating, and this actually happened when I was out there with them. That one of the squad leaders put two tourniquets on his legs before he left the base. And he said, and, and so I did it in the, the novel too, you know, and Cruz said to him, what are you doing? He said, well, sir, if I get blown up on drugs, I sense myself up, I don't want anyone taking a chance of trying to come to me. And Cruz said, you're a hard case, but he said, you're going to, you're really going to frighten everyone else in the unit, so take off those damn tourniquets. But he, the the tourniquet, well, I don't want to get into it, but compared to Vietnam, the tourniquet, was so much different, and so much more terrific, but still, you know, that's like asking a guy was no, I'll stop it right there. But you, you have to expect you're going to be seeing an awful lot of blood and gore. And so I tried in the book not to shy away from letting people know what happens when you're out there.
0: Yeah, well, I think you did an excellent job, and we're ending. We're getting about to the end of the hour now, Bing. So I know you mentioned something about a book that you were thinking about writing uh, a little bit ago. So I wonder if you could uh, bring us out by telling us what plans you have in store. Well,
1: I found out something about writing in this book, and that is that um, it's 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 hard now to get reviews of books about combat. Uh the average literary reviewer isn't wild about the subject matter. <laughs> but I, I Well do... and
0: you're not in the standard MFA uh subject <laughs> yeah, category. Yeah, yeah, unless yeah, you're yeah. writing well, something I know very about, narrow kind of thing.
1: Yeah, if I if I had the, the you know, the hairy chested woodpecker or something I could do better. But you know what I what I what I'm really tempted to do, I think it probably take me a couple of years, but You know what I'd like to do, and I already have in mind, take a battle from World War II, and I have the one in mind, and then how that played out and how the American public reacted, and then use that exact scenario, which uh, only this time, and one time it was against the Japanese, the next time it would be against the Chinese, and then try to see whether society would respond the way we did in World War II.
0: It's yeah, so a little bit of a sociological thought experiment, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am, I am an anthropologist by training. So uh, I guess that kind of thing is, uh, is, is interesting to me as well. Well, being that, that sounds great. And, uh, when you write it, if you write it, I hope we can have you back.
1: Well, thanks, Jeff. By the way, did you like this book?
0: I did. I thought it was great. I thought it accomplished, uh, accomplished what you wanted to. And, uh, and I, I have a better appreciation for it now. So uh, I don't want to uh, I don't want to inflate your ego, Bing. It's uh, you've already accomplished enough. I don't think I could do that anyway. But it, it was it was a good book.
1: Thanks, Jeff. Okay, thank you. Semper Fidelis.
0: Yep. yep. All right. Well, thank you, Mr. West, for being a guest on the show, and thank you for listening to New Books in Military History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.